Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of Make Me an Island and we've taken a little longer getting this edition of the show together and it's going to be different from the first 20 episodes of the show thus far. Those uh, programmes were very much built on our limitless love and passion for black music and black culture, principally from Africa and the Caribbean. But events of the past couple of weeks, I think it's fair to say, have forced us to press pause on the music just for a little while so that I can personally educate myself and also listen to some voices within our community here and on that point, the second half of the show today is going to be an extended interview with a man called Brian Cross. Some of you may know him as B+, and his list of achievements are indeed extensive. But it's fair to say that uh, starting from his book about West Coast hip-hop, It's Not About a Salary, in 1993, still a definitive guide to that music, he's a man who is very well placed to discuss events currently happening in America. Uh, in the first half, I'm going to be talking to some artists within our own community. Sunita Apaya Karang is a musician with the band Shukra and also the producer of a very relevant podcast called Points of Intersection. I'll also be talking to the legend that is Limerick rapper Murley, who has just released a painfully pertinent tune called Till the Wheels Come Off. But I'm going to begin today's program by going back to where we left off on episode number 20 with Noelle Sambu. You're very welcome back to the show, Noelle. Now, it's been 19 days uh, since George Floyd was murdered and it's been two weeks since we spoke. And the last time we were talking, we were talking about Congolese music and, and for whatever reason, even though it was five days after his very tragic demise, I still felt like um, I should just stick to talking about the music, uh, what I kind of know best. But events of the last couple of weeks have changed my opinion about that and have changed it utterly. And I think we really have to address um, how we feel about these issues in this country too. Um, Noel, I know yourself um, from uh, your experience of growing up in Kinshasa, that that violence was something that you experienced. But this particular episode was one that touched you deeply like the rest of us it did a lot it, it did um, really make me feel very bad I mean I you know for a few days when I saw that video it just brought very bad memories and then um, I remembered you know myself growing up in Kinshasa going seeing really bad uh, kind of incidents like that during the war um but this video for some reason it just it was even worse than that because to see somebody you know for nine minutes well maybe eight minutes or so and crying for help like that it just was just the most horrific thing to see you know i mean i as a i grew up in it you know in the 1997 there was there was war you you, you got up in the, in the morning there was people who, who were dead you know my, my own friend was shot um also but this video just seemed just it was just the worst thing i've seen it just made me feel really terrible i guess in 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 the prolonged nature of the suffering there was something that we haven't you know we've it even it to our own eyes here um it's something we haven't really seen that that something that protracted and grotesque yeah 
No, we haven't seen that. Um, and even as even myself, I've I've never seen that. Um, mm. And uh, it was just, you know, I just can't believe, I just can't believe a human being will do that to another human, you know? It's just unbelievable. No matter what he did, he shouldn't have died like that. Nobody should go through such horrific, you know, um, act like that. It was just terrible. And and just coming along to what's happening in the aftermath, Noel, um, so it's been almost three weeks now, and clearly um, this incident has awakened not just in America, but, but worldwide issues with regard to racism. Now, you yourself, um, you have experience. Uh, you came to this country and uh, started off in direct provision. Um, how yes. do you feel about just the change in mood, first of all, in terms of people awakening to the issues? Uh, well, in my own experience, if I have to say, like when I arrived in, in Ireland, in obviously I was amongst uh, only African people, and most of them were, you know, asylum seekers. And everybody, this is a true story, Don. Everybody told me this is a racist country, um, and that's just the narrative, you know, that you you find. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also in the direct provision, and everybody in that place just it was such. A, it's just very um, and what should I say? It's very oppressed. You you don't feel like part of the community because you're kind of locked in here, and then you you you're looking at people going outside, and everybody around telling you that this is a racist place. Don't talk to people here. They're just very racist. And I I I, I I'm very different. I always grew up very differently. I have to check. You know, I don't. I have to make sure I have to experience things myself before I believe. So, um, personally, what I did, I went out the, the next day. I went out to to the town. This this was in Cork. I went out to the town and I went down and I would stop everybody who had a musical instrument. And none of the people, you know, insulted me or or you know, didn't. Everybody stopped and they talked to me very nicely. And I met a guy, he never even heard me playing. I just said, I'm a musician. He said, oh, really? He didn't even ask me, what do you play? He said, I have a gig next week. Why don't you come and play? And I went, that was the first gig I did in Ireland. And this guy was, you know, he was, he was an Irish person. And it was um, completely, even the music, it was rock music, which I didn't really play. And we played the gig. And what happened then from that act that I did, it completely changed the whole um, sort of um, outlook on people in where we were staying in the hotel because because of that I, I, I met a lot of Irish friends. They started coming in into the into the hotel, and a lot of the asylum seekers who were there they started making friends. This was completely it really changed. I mean, there's still people who were there. They they all you know, alive today, it completely changed the vibe of the place and people started coming out more. And a friend of mine who was a dancer, you know, he was he was offered a free room to to give like class and African dance classes. People mingled, you know. And then uh, another some I remember something about there was a guy in, in the hotel whose name was Maurice. He always looked very good. You know, he always wear really nice clothes. He was from, from Congo. But he never talked. He was a very quiet person, you know. And you know, and he used to always walk around Cork, 
you know, with his umbrella, always looking good. So I remember I met an Irish lady who, you know, she 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 knew that I was friends with, with him, and she was saying to me, "That man, you know, I've been seeing him for for you know, because he'd been there before me, maybe a year or so, something like that. He always walks around, look, you know, he never talks. He's she's trying to talk to him, but you know, they they never got to talk. Then finally, um, because I, I brought her to the hotel, they started chatting. And she was like, "Wow, well, I used to think I, I I didn't really know what to make out of him, but now I know him. He's a very nice person, and him also. He made a lot of Irish friends, and the whole place changed, you know. Yeah. And so and for me, go on. Sorry. So so for me, you know, the 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 racism issue. It's of course there is racism, Donald. I'm, you know, there is racism. I, I'm not gonna say there isn't, but I think both. Both parties have to make an effort to change it, you know. Um, but there's also there's also a narrative that you already have as a as an African, especially like I'm talking about more African, that you you, you already meet that, that people are racist, and then people also just go on believing that, and then anything that's done to you then it's become is it's racism, you know. That's that's something I I, I want to stress, you know. So I think both people should really. And make an effort to change it. Yeah, in your case, with, with being within that system, I mean, music. Um, it it we 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 know the power of music when it comes to building bridges. So I guess you were fortunate in the sense that you had that in order to to build a bridge within to, or out into the community and then back into um, where you were in the hotel. But yes. the system itself doesn't encourage or 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 um or uh, in in any way promote that type of behavior because you really are excluded and 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 uh, is that fair no. to say do you think oh yes definitely the system is is completely not right the system is wrong for me when people um sort of protest against direct provision i don't think direct provision is a racist act i think it's a bad system yeah you know, it's just it's a bad system because it makes you feel excluded. As I said, people were sitting in, look, you can't really go out, you know, you can't really, that's how you feel when you're inside. So it's it's better to put people in the community where they can mingle, mm-hmm. you know, and bring their talent, bring their ideas. Definitely, I think it's a bad system, that's for sure. It is not a good system, but I don't think it's it's it's, it's a racist act. Yeah. And, and, but when it comes to uh, those opportunities, then, to kind of spread your wings into the community. I mean, you very quickly found your feet in, in your own terms. Yes, I, I did. Yes, that's what I mean. Because, I, you know, I could have not done that. And I know people will still live with that sort of mentality. And, and they're, you know, they're not really doing that well, you know. And they still think, oh, people are racist. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're just trying. Go and meet people, you know, talk to them. They might be. But, you know, maybe your vibe, if you have a positive outlook, look, it's, it's infectious. You know, it doesn't affect, infect people. I'd always say to I know a lot of people who still have that in, in, as, you know, in their mind. And I've been into a situation where, you know, I, I could call this is a racist act. I've been into those situations, you know. But sometimes I just think, you know, there's always going to be issues between people where even... Congolese against Congolese, there's conflict. There's always going to be something where people are around. So 
Um, I think sometimes just people jump into the, the you know, the, the racism card a bit too quickly. There is racism, though. I'm not mm-hmm. saying there isn't. But it's, you know, I think, you know, you should also make an effort to, to change that rather than just calling something racist. So what you're saying really is that there's there's really issues on both sides if you want to say there's two oh, sides yes. of the argument. Yes, there's issue on both sides, that's for sure. I have, you know, I have plenty, plenty, you know, stories and experience regarding those kind of issues. There's because um, people, as I'm, because you already you have that narrative that people here are racist. So if they say something to you, that's nasty. Straight away, it's racist, mm-hmm. you know. But maybe this guy is just, he's just a nasty person. He's not a good guy. Just like a Congolese person would say something to me. But in, if a Congolese person did the same thing to me, I wouldn't call it racist. It would just mm-hmm. be acceptable. But mm-hmm. if, if a white person does that, it's just like, bam, people jump out. And mm-hmm. so I think there's issue from, from both parts, that's for sure. That's for sure. Just in general terms, um, it's roughly 15 years later since your experience of direct provision um, and and you have kids growing up in Ireland now. What do you feel has there been in terms of, of that decade and a half? Has there been, uh, would you say, an improvement in terms of, of, of people's attitude or is it something that is kind of a constantly evolving situation? Oh, no, there's been a huge change. It's, it's definitely different, much, much People are much more mingling more, and you know I see that on the streets more. There's like a lot of you know black and white kids playing on you know playing, and it's it's changing. It's changing big time. And my kids, you know, have never they've never experienced. You know, they never came to a home and said, "I had you," you know, somebody calling me names. No, that's never happened. That's never happened. So it's definitely big, big change. Even I see that, you know, I mean, in music, well, you know, amongst musicians, there's a lot of black people playing, you know, playing with white people. And there's a lot of change done. I don't, I just, right now, it feels like, what I don't like personally, it feels like there's no change. Things are just very bad. That's the, that's what it seems like. But I don't think it's as bad as people are making it to be. There's definitely a lot of change. It's, it's, it's much, much better than it is. But yes, direct provision is not a good system. It needs to change, you know, um, and stuff like that. But it is already much better. Let's say just even on the level of, of the music that I'm engaging with and, um, and that I've been discovering, again, kind of in a fresh way over the last uh, few months. But we have at this point, um, you know, I'm not sure what the statistics are in terms of, and the population overall. But when you look at the amount of incredible art that's being made by people with black skin in Ireland, um, it's uh, vastly more than the actual percentage of people. And and there is a definite change in the narrative when it comes uh, to what's coming through musically, for instance. And later on the show today, um, in fact, in a little while, I'm just going to be playing a new tune by Murley. But like when you take, uh, for example, what's happening in Limerick and, and uh, the incredible music that's coming out of there, I think we're in that period where we can either look forward to uh, an incredible uh, time in Irish society um, 
without racism or we can kind of go the other direction. And I think it would be a really good point. And I guess that's what's good about now is that we can talk about this, about what sort of society do we want. And the thing is that I think it has to be the only society it can be is is one that goes completely in the opposite direction of, let's say, what uh, the situation is in America, where endemic racism uh, over many centuries has caused uh, this kind of behaviour by public officials. Yes, that's it. See, I usually, when we talk, you know, America is a very different place. Me, you know, because I'm from, you know, I'm, I'm African. We grew up in, we look at racism in very different ways as America. And I understand America, Americans, like the race issue is, there's a lot of tension there. But we, we don't really look at it that way, naturally, you know, especially in Congo, you know, especially Congolese. I'll give you an example. We were colonized by, by the, the Belgians. And I remember twice in my lifetime growing up and the Belgian king came to Congo and everybody went on the street and celebrated. It was a celebration. Yeah. You know, there's literally, there's literally no grudge in, in Congolese people towards the Belgian at all. You know, if Belgium was playing, you know, like a football game or something, Congolese people would support Belgium. Although we have a very, very, you know, tense story if you go back, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Yeah. So we look at the, the race issue in a very different way to like Americans. So I, I, I do understand why in America it's very, very tense like that. And, mm-hmm. and some, that's why for me, it's very difficult for me to get involved in our way. It is bad. Things should be sorted. But I know in America, it's a little bit different. Hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, money and power corrupting, uh, corrupting influences of, of money and power being probably the main difference. But um, but just in terms of just on, on, on the, the Congolese issue, um, or sorry, on the Congolese perspective, Noel, um, I mean, this week we saw, um, you know, um, the, the statue of Leopold, responsible for the death of 10 million Congolese people um, being uh, desecrated and damaged. Um, so it's interesting that you should say that, that on the ground in the Congo, that that's, that, that, um, it's, that's kind of surprising to me, that that's the attitude towards the, the colonizer. Well, did you see the footage? Did you watch the footage? No, sorry. Of the, of, but if you see, it was actually a white person who went, started it at all. Yeah. It wasn't a Congolese person. Okay. It was actually a white oh, in, person. In, in Belgium, actually, you mean? But I don't know. Yeah. In Belgium, yes. Okay, it was yeah, it wasn't yeah. the, it wasn't the Congolese. Yeah. No, we like we call I grew up, we call the Belgians uncles. Okay. Like there's no grudge at at all. Yes. That's why there's a lot of Congolese in Belgium. Right. There's really no this we grew up with very like I remember Roi Baudouin came, there was we sang song for him. There's completely no grudge at all. Right. You know, um, so we look at it complete, complete. I, I, I don't know why I want and I don't know if that's good or not. But all I know, we don't we didn't grow up like hating the Belgians. Mm-hmm. But what I know now in the last especially five years, because of all this, you know, Black Lives Matter, I am noticing Congolese talking more racial, you know, kind of nasty about the whole thing mm-hmm. so i feel like i feel like africans or at least Congolese, are just kind of you know getting sucked into this this mentality which i you know 
I, I don't know if it's, if it's a good thing. I don't know if it's a good way to solve the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, but in my, as I say, we definitely don't have that. You know, we did not hate Belgians growing up. There was none of that. Belgians mm-hmm. are like uncles. This is the songs about this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. I, I suppose when you're talking about what happened in, in uh, it was in Brussels, right, um, where, um, I mean, it, in, in many cases, what's happening in the UK as well is uh, the colonial power confronting their history for the first time or, or reassessing that, you know. Um, so, um, I mean, yes. hence the reason why it was a white person to, or with the statue or whatever, you know, as in that's that's what's going mm. on there. Yes, I mean, I... I, I and it's um the, the story is very you know it's very bad story and it's it's good that you know I was when I saw that what happened in you know in Belgium of course I was I was happy for that but it was not initiated by a Congolese person people are just going on but it's good that themselves they realize that okay this was a very you know this person is you know is is shouldn't be glorified like this mm-hmm. I think it's good in that way. I think it's the best way, you know, because it was a Belgian person who went and started the whole thing. It wasn't yeah. like the Congolese went and marched and, and did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah, sure. Um, Same in the UK, you know. Yeah. Um, well, just to bring it back home again, I, I before, um, I, I, I think when it comes to what you said about direct provision, that that's the key thing, is that it's not necessarily a racist system, it's just a bad system. Yeah, it's Donald. It's just like, you know, people say the music industry is bad, you yeah. know, or, you know, the, you know, it's just another system that's very bad. Yeah. But like, I'll tell you, I, I, there was a good story. This is actually, you know, there was used to be a guy who worked there, you know, um, I, and I think he was from somewhere in, in, in maybe Yall somewhere, but he was a Cork native, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I got his spoke speaking to him and he, he, he turns out he used to be a sound engineer. He used to work as a guard at night. So do you know what he did once? One day, he brought his um, mixing desk at night and I, around kind of midnight, and people were asleep. I brought my guitar there and, and I re- he recorded me. <laughs> yes, this guy was a cork guy, a white guy, like he was risking his job. So for me. You know, that's like such a, you know, good thing to do, you yeah. know, I mean, but I know for certain when, when I went there, people told me this guy is racist because he was the type of guy, he didn't really smile. He was just like, mm. but people say, ah, oh, this guy is, is a racist guy. Mm-hmm. But what, this is what he did for me. He risked his job. Yeah. Like if he was arrested, he would have lost his job. But he brought his mixing desk at nighttime and he recorded me. <laughs> but everybody told me that this guy yeah. was a, was a racist. It's a thin line. I mean? It's a thin line, isn't it, Noel? Sometimes it's just a very thin line that separates what appears to be something and what it actually is. And in, in that case, he was obviously, you know, like the, the the idea that there's angels in the architecture. He was really looking out for you. Yes. Yeah. It was just that's his personality, you know, and it's just a bad system, Donald. That's for sure. Mm. It's a system that should be changed. It's not good. It's very exclusive you know and it doesn't make you feel very very proud of yourself you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. because you don't feel part of the community where you're living in mm-hmm. so it make you know your your you're, you're going to be you know a lot of low self esteem yeah. because of that 
and, and all of those all of those problems yeah all of those problems that come with that lack of self-pride exactly yes then you know then you get very anxious and if, if something happens to you or something somebody said something to you so all of a sudden you jump out or it's racist or stuff like that you know mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. no, I don't. I don't think it's a racist act. I think it's a it's it's a bad system that should be that should be changed for sure. Um, Noel, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again, and thank you uh, for taking our call today. Um, I'm going to um, leave that conversation now and go to our next guest, which is Morley Boyby. And Morley, you might know from the Russ and Gano family. He's just made an incredibly important and pertinent tune called "Till the Wheels Come Off," and this is it right here. Thanks, Noel. Thank you very much, Donald. Monkey chants in the stadium. Jackie Chan in the cranium. If he could, he'd be schooling him. And live again, carry on through holograms. Roaches on my timeline. They don't like me, but they want mine. My iris is the color of a stop sign. Unlike my missus, I am not fine. Sticks are higher than a cow on cannabis. I stay on side in the clear like where the banner is. Laugh aloud just to cover up the cowardice that I resulted from investing where the mana is. I see you get away with things that I never will. I close my eyes hoping I'm dreaming, but I know it's real. Buying time to plan my get out. Jordan Peele, why the daily news say he can't? I be man of steel. My arms strong from holding back on all fronts. I know tongues that reach spots is saw ones. Unbeknown to hot spots, I kept mum. Spare your kids the wrath. If you're that dumb You I forever Nobody safe here Unless we all are You can't I forever Nobody safe here Took a see by an anonymous street listening to Nas. Though the inspiration was free, I paid a price and they look at passerby gave us. It was a nice H3. We've been refugees like left and prize. Opened my mouth, started four times like Pharrell's beat. So I just kept it to myself like these beats. But you don't stand for something, life is a lottery. And since I never wanted it, that's not my strategy. I'm exiting my second puberty. I apologize for the false sense of purity. Those who saw it rise, don't dump forward the foolery. Warn us the guys to outscrew the scrutiny. You ever heard my voice in the razzmatazz? I'm gonna have to take a pass on the pat on the back. That's not my vibe. I just roll with the punches so I survive. Whether the storm trap the rain and take a dive. Been on the radar all my life, you don't hurt no more. I speak, you roll your eyes like you heard it before. Next minute you're down, picking your jaw off the floor. What I live for, you can't tell me nothing, that's protocol. So 
so painfully pertinent and also uh, so very hot off the presses. Uh, my second guest on Make Me an Island today is the man responsible for such brilliant work, Murley Boybe. Uh, Murley is a poet, innovator, rapper, producer, and uh, it's great to have you on the show, Murley. Um, I think um, it's fair to say that the wheels have actually come off there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, thank you for that beautiful introduction, actually. Um, really appreciate that. It's an honor for me, actually, to be here as well. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know what? It's come to a time where I think, as a society, we need to... I believe that may maybe we got comfortable with certain things. And I, I always start with myself. When it's like there's so, so many things that I now feel like I could have done better you know, um, or I should have reacted better in so many other situations. Um, but the events of the last couple of weeks have highlighted some of these things to me. And, um, and I need, I have been transformed by, you know, on one hand, by the reaction of people, um, here at home, um, but also people in the U S how people have actually, um, taking the stand this time and say, listen, something has got to change. We can't keep going on like this. So um, I think this is, um, I don't know if it's a great start, but it's a start. Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely an opportunity at, at a moment in time, a critical moment at a critical point. Um, but I suppose uh, just when it comes uh, to uh, what, what we need to, to address here in this country, um, you yeah. came here from Togo, Togo in 2003, am I right, Marley? To Limerick. That's correct, yeah. Yes, yeah. so I came to Limerick in 2003. So I guess you're talking about a decade and a half. Um, things things move, uh, have moved pretty fast in this country, but at that time, what was your experience uh, when you came here? So when I came here, um, at the time, I was, I was quite young, 11, 12. Um, so... First of all, I suppose there's the difference of like, you know, you're now in Europe as opposed to Africa. So um, first of all, the climate and all of that stuff is different. So you're trying to, to, to readapt to your new setting. And um, what was, I suppose, my, my, my earliest experience of having to deal with things I never actually imagined I would be dealing with to that point was in school. So um, some of the questions that some of my classmates would have been asking me out of curiosity, you know, because we're all kids anyway. Um, but I suppose even at the time, there was certain things that I thought were odd, some questions. But interestingly, like, it's only when you're getting older that you kind of, for some reason, you you go back to some of those um, times. I go back there a lot, and I'd be like, okay, I wonder why this person was asking me this question. And also, like, if we're, we're all kids, but where were these questions coming from mm -hmm. you know some of them even hinted at things happening behind the scenes <laughs> or sometimes things that maybe kids were hearing other people say mm -hmm. and that's why they would be asking those questions but also um, maybe a large part due to the way black people or Africans were actually portrayed on TV mm -hmm. which is where we drew a lot of our information from at the time and um, interestingly like everything that I knew about Europe prior to coming to Europe was uh, from TV <laughs> as mm -hmm. well. And, um, and most of it was like rather, you know, positive. <laughs> um, but I kind of felt like when I arrived here, like 
I think views people had of Africa was mostly negative. Yeah, stereo um, stereotypes. Proper, yeah, yeah, stereotypes, and um, so then you you then had to undo tr- or try to undo, undo a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe like shed light on certain things and and show another side of Africa, um, yeah. which eventually like. It was okay for me to do that, um, to show that side of like, okay, it's not everything they show in there. That's not what it's like. But um, I think it's very, very hard to to undo what people like have come to believe about, you know, about a certain group of people. It's really, really hard to undo it. Um, even though like as children, you know, like even though we, like our relationship, we, you know, our form bonds with a lot of people and as we were getting older, um, they became people that I trusted and who were like genuine friends of mine, but still there was still moments, you know, and, and a lot of the time I used to hurt me was like, you know, everything is good on t- until you anger someone. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, if their reaction, uh, points to something that is quite racist, yeah. then it's, um, it hurts. I, I, there's a line in there, um, Morley. I, I know tongues that reach spots a sword won't. Um, yes. And, and I guess at that point, what you're talking about is taking, you know, a, a double blow in the sense that somebody you assumed um, was on your side, when it came to any point of contention, your color became an issue. 100%. So that's exactly what it, what it was. Then you're like, um, okay, um, I don't know why you can't look beyond the color because um, then you understand that, okay, well, something must have put that in mm-hmm. you for you to view color as soon as uh, a person of color offends you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And that that is the thing that we need to absolutely uh, clear from our society and, and to make a society that is actually goes against that because if we row against that, then we won't end up where uh, America has ended up with, uh, you know, institutional endemic racism is what leads to grotesque acts like what, what he saw. Um, Murley, on the point of doing something about, you know, giving this impression of, oh, this is what we're capable of. I just want to know where did your, um, when did you start rapping? When did that become a factor in your life? So you you, you come here aged eleven, is it? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, so when did you start to take up the mic? It all so it almost happened like um, I, I would say probably, I always say like thirteen because that's like you know I was still in secondary school and um, a lot of the times see when you find it hard to um, to integrate right to find your place. Um, among your peers, um, you look for other ways to, sometimes other ways to impress people, but also other ways to let people welcome you in. And so for me at the time, I had other uh, things that I had to overcome. One of them was the language because I was a French speaker coming into Ireland. So um, my English not being bad at the time has isolated me a little bit. So which meant I spent a lot of time listening to music for the large part, uh, rap music, because one thing I noticed was, um, even though a lot of kids didn't know a whole lot about black people, they, they loved black music. Um, 
It's cool, and and I found that interesting. You know, like things about me that people will find strange, will find strange, they will find that cool <laughs> about yeah. rappers. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I think somewhere in me, I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, maybe being a rapper is the way to be. You know, a black boy in in this country or whatever. So, uh, I actually kind of just naturally fell in love with rap as well because it was still something new to even me mm-hmm. back then. And um, so a friend of mine used to kind of give me a lot of like CDs at the time and I would go home and like make a copy of it and, and rip the CD and listen to these songs. Then eventually I found myself uh, writing my own versions of songs that I was into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 13 would have been the first time I wrote my first verse. Um, but before that, I actually was playing with like making beats um, that because like, we had our first computer at home then, yeah. and uh, and a, a friend of a friend had kind of gave me a land of a uh, a music software, uh, which I was experimenting with at home. So that was fun. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, if I'm making these, I might as well start making trying to make something on top of it. So that's when I started rapping. Um, uh, you make it sound uh, easy, Merle. I mean, the thing is, there's um, so at that point when you when you've uh, started to express yourself, right, and you're you're, you're yeah. two years in the country, and and you know there's uh, undoubtedly that that bridge that you say that rap builds is undoubtedly something that was probably uh, of great use to you in terms of finding your way in the community. But how early in the uh, stages of rapping did you find yourself addressing issues of identity in, in in on your own part that was much later actually um because first it was all it was just something we did for fun yeah um i would like write songs about whatever you know mostly something that would like that i could show off in front of people at birthday parties or whatever mm-hmm. that i could you know that i got skills <laughs> um but it became much more than that when I was in college, mm-hmm. um, and I I kind of started taking this seriously because I, that was when I saw myself as a an actual musician who was going to do this as a career, mm-hmm. and um, and I became much more outspoken about things that were happening. So I started writing songs about um, things like discrimination and you know um, things that I just thought were not okay. And I remember like the first. I had a song back then um, on a mixtape I did when I was 18. And and I showed one of the lads then, and he was like, what, you did this? I was like, this is like a, they're like, you know, this is an actual song, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I really appreciated that. I, um, so that was it, so I was 18 when I wrote my first um, important song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a natural phase anyway when any musician or anybody uh, a rapper who whatever it is going through a period where they're really just trying to imitate and, and it's just kind of a mimicry thing until you That's find right. your voice but when the, once when that when that happened once that happened um it was a different story from from there on and that led to Russ and Gano family right That's right yeah so it was so once that happened um you start, you find yourself doing like shows, small shows, you know, sometimes like mostly at the time was like, you know, African parties or, you know, community events and stuff like that. And um, so myself and God knows and a few other friends of mine uh, would be doing things together. And um, we played um, 
a festival in any street festival. Um, and then I think that's when, that's when I, I, I got to meet John yeah. properly. And then, um, so we all kind of found common ground, you know, mm-hmm. um, that we were all into kind of similar things. And, um, and then a couple of years later, Chris and Ghana family was born, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know, it was first, God knows him, my name is John and mm-hmm. I was working with them. Yeah. Um, but from touring together, um, we, we just naturally became a trio. Yeah. Um, one of the beautiful things was was that that the way that that trio worked and um, and you made groundbreaking work all the way uh, and won the choice prize might I add, but um, so just in terms of uh, the evolution from there, Morley, um, to the present, um, you have in the last while been responsible for producing some of the most important music that's been come out of this country. Uh, um, in recent times, that by uh, Denise Chyla, to, to name one in particular. Um, so your own evolution in terms of moving from uh, your primary skill, uh, rapping, to production, how did that come about? So um, I, what I often say is like, I think um, as you grow through life, like you you go through phases and like at every stage you are in your life, you you're going to do something really good and something's, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And I think that's fine to, to make those mistakes as well, because you, you, you learn from them. And that's why I'm actually, um, I'm optimistic about our, us as a society that we, we can do this, right? Because um, producing was something that I was into at first. Um, it came a time when I, I thought I wasn't as good as I, I, I wanted to be. So I kind of gave up on it a little bit. And just focused on rapping, and um, and I got my rap skills to a level that I was satisfied with. But I would continue to improve. And um, so after we released uh, Lady Dead, Birdie Dead, and toured it and everything that happened, came a time when I was like, okay, I, I kind of want to up my game a little bit. Um, but importantly, maybe a new challenge, and that challenge for me was uh, producing. So uh, I got a few gears together and um, started started experimenting, and it just so happens that you know Denise Chyla was she was uh, at a lot of our shows at the time she was performing with us, and um, she would be here when I was recording stuff. We God knows, and um, she she used to have this she she did this piece uh, dual citizenship a few years ago that I heard it and I was like wow that is that should be recorded. I don't know how, what's the best way we could record that because it's, it's a very long piece. It's, the full piece is actually much longer than the recorded version. Yeah. And um, so she was here one day uh, and I just played this uh, sample that I, that I kind of flipped here and I just kept playing it and I was like, do you want to try that poem on this? And then she did it on the mic. She recorded it here on like uh, this, what was it? It's like um, a four-bar loop that I had back then. So she recorded the whole thing on it, and then I was like, "Okay, that's 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 fantastic." So I didn't have to. I just sat with that for like a few weeks, playing with it, trying different things with it, and then eventually came up with what became the final version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I showed it to her, and yeah, she happened to I liked it. So that was like one of the first big production I, I did at the time um, that I was satisfied with as well. 
But then uh, I just kept trying a few different things, other ways of producing, like sampling. I got into sampling a lot more. Mm-hmm. And um, before you know, like we, every, we used to meet here every Monday in the studio and um, come up with something each time. And before you know, we ended up with like a bunch of songs, you know, for myself, G, Denise. And um, so now it's something I'm, I'm enjoying it as much as I, I enjoy rapping. Mm-hmm. And and there is something of a crest of a wave, not just with Denise, uh, but in Limerick in general. Um, and it's something that I've spoken to God knows about a few times. Um, something's really coming to fruition in, in that city, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and like one thing I, I had to say about like working with Denise is like that elevated my game. Yeah. Um, and, and that was almost like um, what I needed, you know. Because yeah. um, I wanted to up my game as a person and as an artist together, and hearing someone so confidently voice um, what she believes um, pushed me to be like, okay, I need to match this at least as far as the yeah. the music to go with it to complement it. Yeah. Um, but then my city as well being full of like you know these young artists who are very unique in their own ways, and, and it's something that I don't know if it's happening anywhere really in the world but i can only speak of where i am and right now yeah like if i just take even just the rappers like the crop of rappers that we have here they're also like individually unique mm-hmm. but just as talented as the other one you know and i'm watching them and i've got to i mean i got to experience a lot of these guys from like eight years ago, you know, mm-hmm. and then to see how far some of them have come. Yeah. And I've always looked at it and I'm like, this is exactly what I wanted when I was younger. Yeah. I wanted to have this competition here, you mm-hmm. know, this healthy competition that will challenge you and that will push yeah. you to, to, to better your skills. Yeah, because in those situations, in, if that situation, it's, it's incredibly positive from everybody that I speak to that's um, operating in the city at present, but um, all boats rise, you know, and uh, there's got to be a harbour master or two, and I'm sure yourself and God knows um, represent that. Um, but it is a case where all boats rise when when there is healthy competition and uh, and so much talent. Yeah, no, for sure. And also, we, I think we're lucky to have um, people who who believed in music, you know, a, a score like who believed in it happening um, organically. And you know, like when I talked about John, uh, my name is John earlier, but also. Naive Ted, you know, having those for me, having yeah. those people around me uh, made me focus on what mattered the most because I, you got to, we got to acknowledge it. When you come into hip hop, you come, a lot of it coming to it from what was on TV at the time, you know, when yeah. I was growing up, um, what, what was mainstream hip hop then. So you have this image in your mind that all oh, these mega stars, you know, have with these fancy things around them and, yeah. and all of these things. Um, but then having people to kind of bring you back, you know, like to ground is like, listen, put both feet on the ground because you got talent and you can, mm-hmm. you can do this. You got something special in you. That gave me a lot of confidence. And mm-hmm. I think uh, everybody in the city benefited from that culture of wanting to do something that even if it doesn't reach like the end of the globe, mm-hmm. we're still... Um, We'll see, we're still doing something here that we can all be proud of. Mm-hmm. The best, and, um, yeah. That, yeah. I think the best that you can kind of hope for in that situation is if that, um, you know, that there's some kind of sense of identity about uh, what's going on. And, and clearly, 
that is the case in 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 what's happening there. Um, do you think, Marley, that it's just in terms of you know what we were talking about in general, where the conversation started, um, yeah. that this idea of of music being a very positive force and a uniting force. Um, I mean, we, we, we're, we're well aware of the limitations of all art in terms of uh, how much it can change the world. But I think there's a, a very good example of, of, uh, of what's going on in, in your city at present is a good example of, of the way that, yeah, yeah, it can definitely build um, some bridges and cross certain boundaries and integrate in, in hidden ways, magical ways. I absolutely agree. I think it can. And I think like the one thing we, I suppose is worth stressing is that we are, um, Ireland is, you know, this is a beautiful country, you know, and like the Irish people, you know, as a people, we have something, um, there is a warmth that for me, when I travel, even it's hard to kind of find that anywhere else, you know, so th this is very much home. And and I love that in Limerick, the family that we are, the, the musical family, the music family in Limerick is um, is very welcoming, you know. And so when we get together and like we're performing or we're just like chatting or sharing ideas, you just feel like this is a this is like this is a movement in itself, hmm. you know. Um, and, and this is kind of like part of the dream that you want, where you're like, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be amazing if the world just kind of yeah works like this you know if yeah. it works like this everywhere you know yeah. so um it, it is an incredible i feel lucky to be where i am right now yeah. and even the fact that we got to the things we're talking about right now the fact that we're, we're able to kind of engage in those conversations um that's what fills me with optimism um I, and i yeah. think we can do us as musicians we can do a lot I think that that tiny slice of utopia that you describe when it comes to this strong sense of community, that is power to the people in action, isn't it? 100%. It is. It definitely is the power to the people because like everything else, um, I think everything that we do, you, so if you are ruling or running a country or I don't know, a community, a group of people, you are working with them, you are, or at least you're supposed to work with them. So if it comes to a point where they're not happy with how things are going, um, and they all stand up for it, then it's got to change. The system has got to change. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, for a long time, there was like, um, there was a lot of criticism about Irish hip hop, you know, how it was almost like a copy and paste version of what was happening in the US and all of that stuff. And um, and I used to see some of that too. But now I understand that, you know, we were at a stage where we were still learning. A lot of it were learning. And and our influences were American rappers. Um, but in that, we happen to have found our own identity somewhere. And now we're pushing that. And I believe that, you know, like, if we hone on our, on our skills, um, it's going to come to a point when people in the U.S. will be insp inspired by uh, what's happening in Irish music here, you know, if it's not happening already. <laughs> Murley, what a place to leave it. Thank you so much. Dual Citizenship produced by Murley, Boy B, Denise Chyla. Thank you very much. Where are you from originally?
See, our souls are composed of borders, and all of the lines that we have crossed that tangle our wires when we speak. There are some people who have borrowed accents from almost every single continent, trying to fill in the blanks where our tongues are starting to trip over the languages that we were born into. There are some people who will spend their whole lives looking for a definition of home that doesn't come with strings attached. I have spent my whole life learning that I must make myself take my belonging. It will not just be handed to you. So now, now I can tell you about king and about countries, about wars and democracies, about independence and revolutionaries, about famine and bounty, about green and white and golden eagles against streaks of orange and black. I can tell you about Aaron Naveen and Lumbanyeni Zambia. I could show you the spirit of Lucan, Limerick, and Lusaka. I could translate all of my Lenje stories so that we could sing them Oskwelga. I could be bacon and cabbage in Muflira or Matevito in swords cooking in Shima. That's who for Sadza for my people in the diaspora. But you see, I'm both the story, Akashimi, and the one telling it, Shanaki. There is so much Kaylee in my Kopala, and I am tired of proving that I am as much Denise as I am Mwaka. So Kane Shkale, because I learned how to be Irish knowing some people would always think that I was beyond the pale. I learned how to be Zambian with two little bemba to prove I haven't lost my way. But as long as there is copper still inside my blood, nothing and nobody will ever cause the Zambia inside of me to rust. And if anyone tries to throw all of my errands to the dogs, I will bring the hounds out just to show you what Kukalin taught me. You see, we know what it's like to be patchwork, to be tapestry to be too long prodigal from your homeland while you are slowly being adopted to another. We are a remix of anthems and flags. We are both the signature and the line connecting dots that do not yet know their correlation. So no, these are not alien flowers, but yeah, we're extraterrestrial because we've been nurtured by many soils and we are not the dead branch of a family tree falling victim to mental deforestation. Yes, we have been replanted, but we can't forget how we got here. Still fresh off that boat. So if you throw us in the deep end, we'll show you that we know how to float. Not everything is bad about being a rolling stone. Sometimes you just cover more ground that way. Sometimes all of this baggage only has us going on guilt trips. Sometimes secondhand citizenship makes video clips, football chants, rugby matches feel like copper bullets. Sometimes the wind that shakes the barley blows through you like hurricane season. But we will not let anybody scatter these seeds or dictate where they grow. We are too familiar with this field. We know that we cultivate our homes. Athen rise state of mind. We only yield when it's time to harvest. Uh. Uh. 
So where are you from originally? Because we are not the dead branch of a diasporan dream. Yes, we bear different fruit from our family tree. We offer different produce to the family feast, but there is no hiding these roots. There are no lies in these roots. We are unashamed of our heritage. We have nothing to prove. And sometimes there's a pain in these roots that our being is anchored to, but you will see beauty when this forest grows. You will see us for what we are. We are the same stem with different leaves, the same love with different means, the same heart with different dreams, the same journey just with different wings. So where are you from? Where are you from originally? It's a landmark piece of music in every way, a proclamation so poetic and precise. Denise Chyla in full effect there with music and production by Merle Boybee. Now, my third guest on today's extended edition of Make Mean Island is Sunita Apaya-Karang. And you might know Sunita from her wonderful band Shukra. And uh, I know that uh, you could possibly have, uh, like me, danced to them over the past few years. Or if you're a regular listener, to Dublin Digital Radio, uh, then you'll know her Points of Intersection show is a standout one on that great station. And uh, the ground that it covers is very topical indeed at present. And I'm delighted to have Sunita on the show. Now, I know from talking to you that dual citizenship and Denise Chyla very much resonates with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you say, they very much, uh, you know, succinctly and poetically and kind of somehow all-encompassingly um capture the essence of being uh you know an immigrant moving to a new country probably anywhere um but certainly her kind of you know the way that she kind of paints the picture on Irishness and on you know being able to weave yourself into Irish culture as well as being able to carry historical uh, and cultural elements of your your you know uh, background from from home and in her case Zambian in my case South African um yeah very much resonates with the experience of of being here and and the pridefulness of being able to do that and even sometimes the complexity of fitting in and not fitting in both moles as well yeah hence the brilliance of the title where jewel is spelled d-u-e-l uh, among the many brilliant things about that tune is uh, the very fresh way that Denise presents a definition of home. Now, from listening to points of intersection, it would seem that you're very much engaged with questions around the many new ways in which that word can be defined here. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that, like, uh, you know, my particular pursuit in terms of, you know, creating a podcast, exploring that idea was very much... Um, in tandem with my just also kind of investigating myself in in the context of intersectionality a lot more and kind of realizing that and stepping into it 
uh, and, and acknowledging the nuance of it and the complication of it. Um, but also acknowledging that much as it is that I might have had a lived experience of some aspects of it, it's it's a kind of fairly unique experience that's not representative of wider ones. And yet I still find myself being a, a mouthpiece for like, what is the female black experience in Ireland, especially as a singer and maybe the front woman of the band Shukra that I'm in. And just, yeah, any kind of outward public facing thing that I was in where I'd have to speak to my particular experience being here. Um, so there was a lot for me to like kind of learn and unpack in exploring the idea of intersectionality that I had touched on academically in college and, you know, just engaging in different types of media content. But a lot of it would be very UK and US centered. And I, I really was interested in exploring as to what that looks like in an Irish context. And it's so great that the timeliness of having people like Denise, having people like Merle and God knows Philly speaks, like just this resurgence of artists across the board narrating to that experience, but also just narrating in a very kind of casual uh, Irish way as to just their experience overall without it being pointedly, hey, I'm an immigrant that's living here. You know, just telling stories that are different to what I've been told before is really refreshing. And uh, yeah, I'm really welcoming of that. Well, you do a brilliant job bringing those narratives together in a very refreshing manner on the show. And I want to talk a little bit about your own story. Already on uh, today's edition, I've been talking to Noelle Sumbu and Merle Boyby about their adjustment to life in Ireland in an urban setting. But it was very much the opposite for you in Kerry. And uh, how was that? Yeah, it was very interesting because I would have, and I kind of still to some degree think of myself as a city girl inherently. I come from, you know, uh, East London in South Africa. It's a, a coastal um, city. It's the opposite Cape to Cape Town. So it's the Eastern Cape. And um, and then even moving to Tralee was like a relative culture shock. I thought I was coming to Eskimo land and then it turned out it wasn't like that. And then moving to Tralee was quite a culture shock in, in some ways. Um, and not, not necessarily in the ways that people would have necessarily imagined like I came from a fairly middle class background so like you know the what that looks like in South Africa versus here is like totally different um and then moved to the countryside post direct provision and and that was all a, sh- a shock to the system and it was kind of it's it's only really in the last couple of years that I'm even kind of resurfacing memories of that and kind of unpacking that particular experience but then moved to the countryside in Kerry with um, my, my youngest sister Yasunya and uh, our step-parents and that was like the, the ultimate culture shock for me because I really hadn't had any rural upbringing really or, or I spent any significant amount of time in any rural places really um, and so it's it's a it's a funny thing to be you know in this new context and and being a teenager and feeling that everyone's trying to ruin your life and basically make you you know <laughs> one with nature. Meanwhile, you just want to hang out and truly uh, truly park with your friends or whatever. Um, but then also just experiencing that new you know that kind of new sense of like being a novelty as well to a place like I feel like you know for at that stage we probably wrote one of maybe the kind of biggest cultural shifts or biggest novelties as far as people moving to the place because it's very localized and it's very kind of colloquial and that was part of the charm as well and appreciating that and learning that colloquialism and then also just being drawn in and accepted as part of it as well was kind of nice um but yeah no it, it was it was it was uh it was a beautiful time too it really you know like I've had good times with it and in terms then of the music when did that become a factor in your life uh, it kind of had always been a factor, really, like long even before I'd moved to Ireland. I think I kind of had a first, like I, I definitely always loved music as like a toddler even. And my mom, my biological mom would have been a singer in her church, uh, in church choirs. And even as we moved here, we formed community through church as well. 
as most kind of a lot of African um, people that are Christian anyway would would tend to. So she was part of the choir and I would have, you know, fallen suit as well, sung in church and stuff. And then uh, as far as like making it a little bit more of a professional pursuit or kind of giving it more like vocational uh, attention, definitely when I moved to Castlemaine and my stepparents like had resources to allow to, to send me to like vocal coaching, for instance, um, that was something that they were, you know, that it was recommended to them and, and gave me the opportunity to do that. And from there, then I was able to actually appreciate it as a study. I, I took it on in secondary school and continued it on through to third level um, college. And even afterwards, kind of did like music uh, business and kind of um, kind of music biz related kind of type courses after university. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, a recurring thread, really. And what was your primary degree in college? Yeah, I did a, a BA in music uh, and English. So I'm a mastered, mastered in music and had English. And the, the kind of uh, the plan at the time pre-recession was to be like a music journalist um, and certainly kind of did like on the intersectional side of things through English and both actually. So UCC is what I, where I went and I felt like it was I felt like it was a really informative time as far as like really kind of um, pushing the boundaries of like how I analyze the world and critically thought um, just because I was like exposed to non-traditional musical um, courses such as difference and otherness. And that was kind of the first time really that in an academic sense, I could process things that I did experience without being able to place names or words or kind of conceptualize what they were. Um, so the idea of exoticism, nationalism, genderism and all this kind of stuff. And and then and like looking at it in the lens of rap music, which the lecturer that I had for it, I actually fell in love with him for the year because it really like spoke to me as far as like being able to process my sense of self. Um, so that's definitely where I would say like I did like, you know, women in 17th century music and stuff. So it was really where I kind of started to really statedly um, identify as like a feminist, uh, identify as a person that's like POC and kind of has alternate experiences and dig into like texts that might kind of speak to that. Uh, and while I didn't necessarily pursue it as like a very kind of like rah, 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 I'm going to like be all about this as I've grown up. And even as I've kind of like written songs with the lads in Shukrat, they have always kind of you know, they've always come up in as themes in, in songs throughout the years. Um, and it, it's maybe in the last three to four years that I feel like I've been able to comfortably speak about whatever that journey has been, where maybe I might have found myself to be problematic, where I'm investigating and interrogating and accepting that and maybe even challenging that I am. And then kind of going, actually, that's the cycle of it. Like you're constantly battling, battling constructs or, or kind of preconceived ideas that are problematic. And you kind of constantly have to be doing that work to to get to a place of relating to people in a, in a more humane way and relating to yourself in a, in a compassionate way. And I guess that is the cycle of it, battling uh, those constructs and uh, preconceived ideas to get to a more compassionate place. And I admire your courage in that regard, uh, Sunita. But just tell me, in terms of the experience of sharing some of these ideas in, in the shape of a podcast, has that been a positive experience? Yeah, I have to say that it has been... Um, yeah, super positive. Like, I feel like it's just been really enriching. I feel like it's been definitely part of my latter end of like adult growth. Um, as far as like just learning how to like really wholly love myself with. Uh, and I think that that's kind of been that was the pursuit is just like knowing that I kind of never felt particularly bad and had a lot of validation in my life from people that loved me, but not really understanding yourself quite as well. And I, it's allowed me to like dig deeper into like what my black side looks like and explore even the far perimeters of like preconscribed blackness just to see if that's a fit for me you know and to uh, you know to be able to identify what may or may not be and then contextualize that in the you know the context of my specific life or Ireland or cultural movements and different things um and having that the podcast is an outlet to 
because again, I lived in rural, you know, countryside in Casamayne, so there weren't really that many people that I could kind of go, hey, this is a really unique experience without having to like set up a whole pretext around like what I'm experiencing in the world. Like, so talking to people and, and having this outlet of like intersectionality, which is just a buzzword or an academic way to kind of describe how different people outside of the, like the kind of heteronormative white normal experience that we have accepted society to be like people that are outside of that, how we're all relating with one another. It's just people all around us. Um, having conversations with them around what that experience is like and around their specific lived in, um, you know, narratives just is more connective. It gives me a sense of community uh, or it just gives me a more of a sense of like appreciation for things that you experience as, an, as a single person feeling that you're isolated really is just part of a, a recurring thread of a lot of different stories happening all around you. Uh, and that's kind of the main pursuit as well is to kind of actually you know, if I if I have always been a mouthpiece to friends as an, an outlet to a word that they may not have understood or had an opportunity to feel safe to ask questions, then this is a way to be like, OK, so like if you're curious like this, this is us having a candid conversation. And this is what this is what intersectionality looks like. It actually just looks human. It's just another human experience, you know. Yeah, which says it all, really. Uh, connective is a very good word for it, I think. And I heartily recommend this show. Uh, how and where can people hear it? Yeah, sure. So um, my show airs, it used to be monthly. It's actually every two months now of this year uh, on Dublin, Dublin Digital Radio, usually the first Tuesday of every month between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. And it also then gets uploaded to the Dublin Digital Radio Mixcloud and you can just search Points of Intersection. Um, and yeah, listen back on all the, uh, the past episodes. Sunita Apaya-Karang, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you again, Sunita Apaya-Karang. Now for the fourth and final part of today's extended edition of Make Me an Island, I'm going to turn my attention back to the eye of the hurricane and the United States of America. Brian Cross, or B+, is an associate professor at the University of California in San Diego. Starting with his definitive book about West Coast hip-hop, It's Not About a Salary, released in 1993, through his films Brazil in Time and Keep in Time, and onto Ghost Notes in 2017, his list of achievements in music are extensive. He is a man never far from the heat and uniquely well-placed to take us right to the heart of the matter. We will not tolerate beating, lynching, burning, raping, pillaging, drugging, mass murdering of blacks. We are not your O-R-D-I-N-A-R-Y-R-A-P-P-E-R-N-I-G-G-E-R-S. amazing freestyle fellowship um straight in at the deep end brian cross b plus you're very welcome to the show um the last time Thanks. we chatted you said that uh, history doesn't repeat it, it rhymes and there's a whole lot of rhyming going on right now like that's uh, almost 40 years old and uh, and what have we learned 
Uh, seems like not a lot uh, in some respects, but in other respects, I think we've 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 progressed a lot. I mean, the 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 torch has been firmly passed, and there is a there is some potential roads out of this being proposed, which I think are very interesting, and um, and I think we've learned to organize better. I think mm-hmm. I mean I think that's the real work of of the three women that began uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, so, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's good to start with a little bit of hope. <laughs> uh, B, can I just yeah. take it? Yeah. I mean, let's just say it loud. Like, uh, that's uh, Mike and Nine, AC Alone, uh, South Jupiter, and Mtula Zeza, also known as Peace. They are the Freestyle Fellowship with DJ Kilu. And they are really, you know, it's the beginning of it all for me in many respects, actually. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I yeah. listened to hip hop in Ireland and, you know, I had, you know, put in, paid my little bit of dues. But um, when I was first sent out by Mike Davis to to begin the project that became It's Not About a Salary, the two the two pillars, really, that that I met um, really in the first month were, uh, the Watts prophets on one side who were like the kind of last poets of the West coast, different, but the same vibe. Mm-hmm. And on the other side is the South mm-hmm. fellowship. And there was nothing, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is a wonderful and timely piece, but there is really, there was really nothing like the rest of the music, you know, as well as, as equally as radical and formally challenging. Um, mm. um, and, and so when I when I you know ran across them I yeah it was you know I mean I, I always say it changed my life and I mean it really did I mean mm. you know there are certain things along that change your life and finding the Freestyle Fellowship was definitely one of them. Mm. Actually, just on the point of, of the form of what they do, right? When you go back to it and listen to it, they, it's so challenging and so brave and different. Yeah, I mean these are dudes that were like you know. Um, in many respects, you know, came from even more challenging backgrounds than, um, group, you know, groups that we would have considered as to be the most popular groups in L.A. at that time, groups mm-hmm. like N.W.A., Compton's Most Wanted and whatever. Um, I don't know if you remember that Denzel Washington film where he plays the corrupt cop, which is based on the training day, which is based on the uh, on, a, on real stories from the Los Angeles Police Department. But it ends in this. Um, kind of cul-de-sac where all these gangsters finally pull his card. And that cul-de-sac is in the middle of a place called the jungle. And a number of the members of the group are from there. And, you know, the fact that wasn't really their calling card, though. Their calling card was that they were able to elevate the music. And that's really what they were interested in. So they were borrowing from from vocalese. They were borrowing from jazz. They were borrowing from dance hall. But they were really putting something entirely new together. And it was, it was, you know, I mean, it was around the idea of freestyling, which is, you know, kind of, I mean, the kind of battle culture now, I guess, pertains to be the, 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 the kind of heirs to that kind of music. But in, in that era, it wasn't simply good enough to be able to recite something that you had written earlier and remember it. It was literally to be able to channel some kind of, other voices in rhyme Mm -hmm. and i saw them do that many many times Mm -hmm. to the absolute consternation of people like busta rhymes or or snoop or or people like that you know Mm -hmm. i mean there's a there's a great hip-hop uh documentary called hip-hop evolution on um 
Netflix. And there's this great, great sequence where he's where Snoop, you know, at the time the big deal was like, oh, it's not just gangster rap in LA. There's these other guys. <laughs> and um, but even if, if, you know, when you hear Snoop, Snoop used to go to the good life. Like Snoop used to go to the place where these guys would hang out. Snoop mm -hmm. knew, Snoop borrowed, you know, Snoop learned. And uh, so in, in that in that documentary, it's wonderful. He says, uh, oh, man, let me just tell you, me and Warren G used to listen to the Freestyle Fellowship fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just it's very nice because, you know, like 30 years later, mm. this false dichotomy really between people elevating the music and people that are, you know, doing a more storytelling approach to the music or a more so sort of social realist approach to the music. There was no dichotomy. I mean, they you know they 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 weren't you know there there was they, they were friends they i mean these were people that stood shoulder to shoulder on many things mm. you know so um, but, yeah. but, but in, in, from your perspective coming from um coming from ireland and and arriving into that scene um there there wasn't really a precedent i know you've mentioned before about um that feeling of of there being some kind of republican spirit or or, or at least that that would be something that at least there was a little whiff of that but um, you, you know the story, uh, Brian, of when, when you arrived and, and, and you got those two stories and you saw them both in the paper the same day? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I tell this story a lot because for me it was a kind of, um, it was like a wake-up moment. But basically I, I came here, I, I, had, I had been in San Francisco, I, I had gone on a J-1 visa to San Francisco earlier, I knew San Francisco a little bit, I was moving furniture. And uh, then I, I, I got accepted into CalArts, into the graduate program in photography um, to study with, the, with some cats that I really admired and looked up to. And uh, first day when I'm there waiting to register for classes, when you couldn't do that stuff on the Internet because there was no Internet, um, we were all sitting around sharing a copy of the L.A. Times. And uh, I just remember, like, opening up this spread and on one side of the – page on the right hand side of the page was a, an LAPD officer firing a rubber bullet and on the on the left hand side of the page was a young Chicano gangster leaning against a, a, a fence and it was a story about gang injunctions and the story about the rubber bullets was that the the LAPD had just bought rubber bullets and it was one of those moments where you kind of like yeah it's that kind of double take of like at first I looked at the page and I was like that that looks like the British Army, but I'm like, oh shit, it's not. It's the LAPD just bought rubber bullets. They don't call them rubber bullets, of course. They call them batten rounds, mm. non-lethal rounds, is what they call them now. But you know, the notion was is that this, you know, these kinds of methods of social control, gang injunctions being the other one, where like by virtue of who you hung out with or what neighborhood you were you were from or what color you are, mm. they could prevent you from participating in kind of social life. Um, or make it a crime for you to participate in a certain kind of social life, i.e. you can't hang out with more than five friends at the same time, you couldn't be seen in certain parks, you couldn't, you know, this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, that that there was a thread that links, linked those things together, you know. And uh, and for me, it was a wake-up call. I mean, I, I don't know that I necessarily realized it straight away. I mean, there were sort of, you know, these things come in kind of waves of realization, but it stuck in my head. And I've, you know, I've, I've recounted the story many times. And, and I remember thinking like, you know, we just been protesting against this in, in Dublin. I mean, I was on a few marches myself against the use of rubber bullets before I came to America. 
why aren't we sharing that information with the activists on the ground in LA? Why, you know, it seems so far away, whereas the LAPD is talking, obviously, to the British Army and probably the Israelis. Do you know what I mean? As far as actually procuring, you know, what, what works best, what can we use, you know, this kind of thing. And, and, and just thinking about like, but I think, you know, that's the reality we live in now. Like, I think, you know, there is no question that um, there isn't chatter amongst um, Brazilian Black Lives activists and French Black Lives activists and British and Irish uh, yeah. Black Lives activists and, and those here in the States. And I think the agenda is, you know, the agenda of rethinking policing, rethinking prisons, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it seems to have, you know, it seems to have legs everywhere. So it, it really um, does. And, 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 and I, I, yeah, look, I, b before we get into that, right, I just want to go back to, to where you were when you did that research and you released the book, It's Not About a Salary, Rap, Race and Resistance in Los Angeles. So released in 1993. So in the appendix, there is um, the CAPA report on police abuse in L.A. 1965 to 1991. This outline was compiled from statistics gathered by the Coalition Against Police Abuse, a local independent umbrella organization offering structural and organizational support for local community groups and documentation for legal use in fighting these kinds of abuse. Um, I, I'll, I won't go into the rest of it, Brian, but it, it lists in, in, uh, and gives how uh, and why and where and when by whom these people were killed. Um, let's just take the very, the very start, the 5th of the 5th, 1965, Leonard Deadweiler, shot by LAPD during traffic while rushing pregnant wife to hospital. Officer claimed accidental discharge. I won't go into the rest of them, but so it was a very prescient thing to do in 1993 to include that in your book. Okay. I mean, the thing, Donald, is this, like, it's um, a lot of times, I mean, what I try to tell my students is, is that, you know, um, a lot of art making really is about sort of figuring out what the question is. And and the question for me in regards to that book, and, and it was really very much about, like, um, using, you know, my friends at home to try and talk to them about the sort of circumstances in the frame that produces statements like fuck the police. Um, how do you explain that to somebody who's unfamiliar with the notion of policing or whose only idea of American policing is presented from, from what we've seen on television, which is this kind of heroic crime solving gun toting, um, yeah. fair, <laughs> you know, and that's really not the history of American policing. And so, you know, I, I told you the story pr pr previously where, you know, I was sitting in a car with the Freestyle Fellowship while they were rehearsing um, for their, uh, <laughs> there, there they go again, um, for their, for that album, for that Inner City Griots album. And we were sitting in North Hollywood and I, I was in the back making photographs and they were passing around or we're, we're just chatting. They were arguing or reasoning about something to do with a song or something. And I wasn't facing the street. I was facing them. They were in the front and we were, you know, we were facing in off the street. And suddenly, without realizing what happened, uh, the vibe completely changed in the car. And suddenly everybody's faces were, were filled with fear. And I said, what, uh, what just happened? And they were like, you didn't see 5-0? To me, you know, five, a cop car passing by, like, and what? And to them, it was absolute fear. 
And, you know, this is the this is the problem, really. It's difficult to explain this to people who haven't experienced it firsthand. But, you know, your life is in danger. I mean, it's just that simple. Your life is in danger. Even in the most, you know, ordinary traffic stop, your life can be in danger. So in an attempt to kind of explain how the police function as a kind of occupying army, um, I, I had what well, was fortunate enough to, uh, to, to, through Mike Davis, to know about Michael Zinzun, um, who had the campaign against police, police abuse. And Michael had been a Black Panther um, in the early 70s uh, in Los Angeles and was was the first one that I know of really to go out and patrol the streets with the video camera. So at night he just took it upon himself and he would go out and he would drive around South Central with the video camera. And if he came upon a traffic stop or anything to do with the police, he would just film. And through that process, he he got into an altercation with some police one night, I believe in Watts, and they beat him pretty much to within an inch of his life and he lost his eye. And I'm sure it was deliberate. I have no doubt about it. And he sued them. And the case, of course, went on for years and years and years. He was awarded a pretty generous, I don't know, it was a couple of million dollars, I think, by a court. And then the police appealed it and they got it knocked down. So I think I think it was 90 grand. I think he got in the end, which was just a huge disappointment. And alas, I'm sure he didn't see a penny. And in any event, you know, a man like that, you know, um, he's in the film L.A. 92. I, I saw him on the corner of one of the shots. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's there. I, I could give you the minutes I could show you, but yeah. um, he was a wonderful guy, big guy, militant, of course, hardcore, of course, but he kept this extraordinary archive. And so I just, you know, I just thought, you know, if we could do some kind of an abbreviated version of Michael's, yeah. um, you know, archive of his list yeah. and put it in the back of the book that it would, as an appendix, it would somehow allow people to understand mm. just mm. the extent of it, you know. Um, and weirdly enough, then, you know, sort of uh, maybe six or seven years after the book came out, I was involved in a an organization called the Artists Network of Refuse and Resist, um, which was an organization of artists raising awareness around police brutality um, at the end of the 90s. And one of the organ, one of the activists came up to me and, you know, sort of said, you know, they, they had this project called Stolen Lives, which was a nationwide project to keep track of just, you know, the same thing, people being killed in police custody. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, you know, one of the big inspirations for Stolen Lives was your book. And I, it was so crazy because I had completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think this is the thing, really. I mean, the message really is to is to speak up. Really, you know, yeah. I mean, I think the, yeah. the point is is to be be courageous in your convictions and to speak up yeah. in opposition to this kind of stuff. Yeah. Whether it be about provision, whether it be about police brutality, whether it be about, you know what I mean, where mm -hmm. we see injustice or mm -hmm. responsibilities to speak up somehow, you know. I, I, I today <laughs> I read through the appendix um and 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 it just it's it's shocking the amount of times chokehold is in the the in the how yeah. of the, the the deaths um so look in the sense of the way the system is and the way it is at the moment and and like you touched upon it there with the idea of defunding the police and um and the prison system i, I just wanted to kind of keep a few films in the conversation la 92 was one of them and i would recommend that to to 
every listener. Um, yeah. But but also um, Ava uh, Duvernay's uh, movies, uh, both of which yeah. are on um, Netflix, thirteenth uh, yeah. and uh, and the Central Park Five. Just on the thirteenth, on the on the issue of of prison reform. Um, I mean. How I mean, it's it's that film is. I mean, I would urge everybody to to uh, to go to to check it out. Um, it's incredibly shocking when it's portrayed in such a brutal way about just how the system has what it has done to uh, people of color. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, yeah, pe people like Angela Davis, you know, have been talking about this for a long time. You know, like a generation. You know. Basically, the, the, the system of policing in this country came out of the practices of policing uh, during slavery, which is that they, the police's job was to capture uh, escaped slaves. And it's always been racialized. There's never been a time when it wasn't. And it, it's, you know, the police departments have gone through different, differing levels of corruption. You know, Los Angeles, every time we had a new police chief, there was a new promise of you know, that things will be fixed. But let's be realistic here. Police were recruited into Los Angeles by the original sort of reformer, quote unquote. Um, he was far from it, um, whose name was Chief Parker. And they were recruited in whites only newspapers in the South. So we we're talking about generational uh, racism, generational connections to a kind of Southern um, racist uh, practices and communities that were brought here to LA to police the city. Mm -hmm. And so we were, you know, there was never a time of, you know, it was never a time where it was neutral here. Mm -hmm. It's always been problematic. It's always been, you know, a death threat to yeah. people of color in this city. And so, you know, um, Ava's film is amazing. Ava's film really, you know, it's about the 13th Amendment. Um, to the Constitution, which leaves this little loophole, um, you know, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant film because around this little piece of law, um, she manages to tie in this sort of incredible story about how prison has become an industry in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, in in the same period that um, they were doing so-called welfare reform under Clinton, they were also introducing these new um, ways of sentencing, which were, you know, absolutely brutal, you know, three strike laws, minimum sentencing for, and, and, you know, these, these things are always open to enforce, you know, the way they're enforced. And mm -hmm. let me just be blunt and say that these things are enforced when the bodies are of color much more than they are when they're not. Yeah. And so this kind of notion of whiteness in this country, notion of privilege in this country, which is invisible really to a lot of people, they don't realize that they, enjoy the fruits of it um and it's just they're stale fruits they're fruits that shouldn't be enjoyed it's not there's not a level playing field mm -hmm. and really it's around criminal justice and policing is where it's most acute mm -hmm. but it finds its way into everything health obviously the covid the uneven way that the yeah. covid this has uh, I mean, blacks you know yeah. i mean all of this is, <clears throat> it's all linked yeah, it's all part of a sim same system, but yeah, policing where is, is where it's most. Acute. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's been confirmed whether George Floyd had had um, coronavirus, but it's just even yeah. even that idea that he would be suffering in such a way, and then killed by the police in in such a way. Um, I mean, the 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 idea of those two things being linked, and 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 as you say, the the endemic um, racism in in the system, and 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 the way that the 
Um, it extends into all areas of society, the police being the one where it's, it's most acute right now. Um, just in, in terms of, of the situation overall, uh, Brian, um, I mean, politically, um, uh, where, is there any hope in terms of, of the upcoming election or is that is that too stupid a question? I, you know, I mean, hope being, you know, I, the sense of, of, of if, if Biden represents hope. But, but do you know what I mean? As in, I mean, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I have a, a, a sort of darker, uh, darker vision of this. I mean, I think I'm closer to where Angela Davis is on this, which is mm. I don't, really, you know, um, I don't really see. Uh, I think the only way that politics can be done in this country uh, now is on the streets. And I think, you know, yeah, yeah. all these people that now supposedly and Biden isn't one of them, sadly, who've changed their position around policing and around budgeting and around funding are people that are feel like their jobs are in jeopardy because of the fact that there's 100,000 people on any given day on the streets of Los Angeles that are prepared to stay there until this is changed. Yeah. Um, Biden already has come out and said that he would add three hundred million dollars more to b policing, and mm -hmm. you know Biden is, you know, Biden, I just don't think I just think he's tone deaf. I mean, I ju I, ju I don't, I mean, I just don't think he's absolutely he's, he's he's present when it comes to yeah. you know this this kind of stuff. I mean, he claims to be you know his his proximity to the Obama presidency, but even the Obama presidency, man, like a lot of this stuff happened during Obama. Yeah, you know. Well, that um, was my, my next question was, OK, because because, you know, I, I suppose that that was kind of was definitely a false dawn in terms of any real change. And 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 the, the change that that needs to happen yeah. is is something that won't happen with the system as it is at present and uh, and whether or not the system can be changed. But just um, it, it, I mean, just yeah, on the Obama thing, I mean, some some incredible stuff happened under his tenure. Yeah. Totally. Trayvon Martin happened under his tenure. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, it, it's the, the, the problem is systemic. I mean, and this notion that somehow by changing the guy at the top, you know, yourself is, is going to mark change isn't going to mark change. Change will be delivered by the people here. Unfortunately, that's the way it has to be now. And I don't know. We're, we're headed into a very, you know, we're headed into a very critical moment the next well, from here to November is going to be yeah. is going to be very interesting, you yeah. know, because it's, it's it's on everybody's mind. Everybody's engaged. Yeah. And this is there's there's there is. But there's real opportunity to, to, you know, it's not as crazy as you think. I mean, they you know, if you see the kinds of things that changed here, for example, something that that in education that people have been fighting for years and years and years is this SAT system where, you know, like the leaving, but like made for universities, like a separate test you would do specifically for universities. And they said they couldn't, it couldn't be done. We couldn't get rid of it. It was unfair, but we couldn't get rid of it. It was the system and then here COVID and boom, it's gone. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well, if you can, you know, drop $2 trillion from one week, one to week two out of nowhere, when we're supposedly in a moment of austerity or relative austerity, mm -hmm. um, and you can get rid of the SATs, well, let's deal with this. Yeah. Let's deal with this. Let's everybody own up to what their investment in this is and let's just tone it all. Just peel it back. Take the guns off them. Mm. I mean, just, just plainly and simply, the police, the guns are kept at the station like it is at home. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. How many of them won't be cops if they can't have guns? Yeah. I mean, you know.
Yeah. The gun culture. I mean, this is another, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's as if all this stuff is separate. But, you know, like when you hear about uh, school shooting, mm. doesn't it? And people realize like that this is a situation where the gun has become this sort of central feature of American life in a way that nobody wants. Mm. But yet, when you try to change it, uh, when you change anything, you try to reform anything. It's completely, you know, it's like you're asking them to, you know, not have kids or not be able to eat, mm-hmm. eat or something. You know, it's just mm-hmm. so endemic here. Um, let's go back to Angela Davis for a second, Brian. Um, so there's another film um, which is, or well, there's a couple. Um, uh, the Black Power mixtape uh, being being the the one. Um, uh, Goran Olsen's film um, concerning violence is the follow up one. Um, sorry, did you say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yes, no, so I'm saying wonderful. Yeah. So both of those, uh, I mean, I, I, again, I want to refer listeners in, in the sense that I think that uh, in, in the past couple of weeks, uh, took a break from doing the show and, and tried to really educate myself and, and the, their key films, um, the Black Pearl mixtape, the Angela Davis sequence, I mean, the, the Stokely Carmichael, um, everything that they shoot. Um, maybe you could just tell us a bit about the background to those, uh, how, how they happened. Um, so basically, it's it's an it's a film made from the archive of a Swedish television station that had the resources to send journalists to the United States during that period, which are really talking sixty two, sixty three until maybe nineteen seventy seventy one. Um, and basically, you know, it is the what they call now the Black Power moment. Black Power being the Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Torres, uh, uh, you know, he, that was his phrase. Um, and it's really, you know, an attempt to kind of understand what's, you know, what's going on there. Like in this, if you can imagine that the, the civil rights movement in the United States is the first time something is televised and it's televised globally. And one of the first places actually outside of the United States that we feel the, the, the ripples, if we could call it that is in the north you know it's in Derry. i mean if you if you if you listen to Eamon mccann or or bernadette devlin it's they saw the civil rights movement on tv you know um and the thing is is that and we're linked <laughs> you know uh is it turns is it turns mcinerney it's turns mcinerney right it was the mayor of cork that died on hunger strike in 1915 am i Maybe it's Maxine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't get that point. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, apologies. But, um, you know, he, he, that, that hunger strike was seen by Gandhi. Okay. Gandhi read about that when he was living in South Africa. Mm. And Gandhi decided that, you know, hunger striking was, you know, a legitimate way. To, to 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 oppose you know the forces of the empire that there was something about that 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 had a kind of almost biblical resonance with people and you could you could you could mobilize people around these kinds of acts or actions or gestures and so you know here comes gandhi well yeah here here comes you know 30 40 years later here comes uh, mlk knowing about gandhi and 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 uh, and out here, farm workers organizing and knowing knowing about Gandhi and understanding that there are ways, you know, thinking about strategies to oppose empire. And of course, 
it bounces back and we get it in the north. You know, we get this moment. And television is a really important part of it. Mm-hmm. And so it would be no it would be no surprise to know that there I mean, I'm sure there are many more archives like this, but um his name is uh, Horan Golson, right? That's his name. Tell oh, yeah, Horan Golson. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, are, yeah. are there many? I mean, they, the Swedish angle was particularly in, in the sense that they had, you know, they had they they opposed Vietnam, and 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 there was, uh, you know, they were coming from somewhere different, right? As in as in the, the government were at that point, and and definitely, I mean, in terms of. Uh, the the investigative reporting i mean it's of excellent quality it's uh i mean it determined oh, efforts yeah for sure and that, and the results Wait, are there you know the work gets the work i mean the the, the as the ones that the interviews that i'm referring to they're stunning yeah yeah they're stunning i mean they're stunning in the way that somehow by virtue of the fact that this is a crew from far away they get a different kind of mm. Angela Davis. You yeah, get a different yeah. book um, But then it's cut together beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really gives you a sense of the time. It's kind of an immersive film. You know, there's the, yeah. the narration is very little. It's really just about going from one interview to another to another. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then they wonderful. Piece of work. I mean, a great teaching, a great teaching film too. You know. Yeah, and 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 a really fast education. I think in terms of you know in terms of of somebody who. Who might need to to to, to get educate themselves? I think it's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty rapid way of doing it. So the, the Black Bear mixtape concerning violence is yeah. different than um, Brian. That's um, what is the context of that the, one? Is the the second film where he realized that there was also in the same archive um, a trove of films made about the kind of colonial struggles or anti-colonial struggles in Africa in this from the 50s until the 70s so you know um everywhere from ghana to congo to angola and then instead of this time instead of relying on interviews as much um what he did was uh used france uh fanon's black skin white masks i believe is the book that he used for the film but he uh he has Lauren Hill read passages from the book and then cuts the footage to it. And again, it's one of those films where you're just left at the end, like mouth on the floor and mm. just, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible debt. This it's a terrible debt and it will require radical yeah. gestures mm-hmm. to begin even what needs to be fixed, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, well, radical, just... radical, uh, you know, radical thought. I mean, that's in the well, that's when radical thinking and people like Angela Davis comes in. And I mean, she, she, she shines as brightly as ever. Yeah, no, I mean, you can catch her zooms. You know, she's yeah. on Zoom. Yeah. I'm sure she's on top of her life on Zoom at the moment. Yeah, but I mean, the vision is it, yes, it's acts of radical imagination. Robin Kelly, the great historian, that's what he would say. I mean, it's a kind of it's part of the tradition here is that there's been a radical imagination since the time of slavery because mm-hmm. how else did they survive? Think about it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? How did they survive? It's through acts of radical imagination. Yeah. And 
you know, this is this is the this is what's at the center of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just just before we move away from from Africa, there, uh, Brian, on, on, in, on radical imaginations, um, the 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 main body of of the work that I've been, or sorry, the main body of the material for the shows that I've been doing up to now have been. You know the the kind of revolutions, musical revolutions that happened in, in post-colonial societies uh, across yeah. Africa, the Caribbean. Um, I mean, you know, the, the the perfect example what happened in, in Jamaica uh, after '62, uh, but all throughout Africa and and that period that you mentioned um, that that is the feature material for concerning violence '50s uh, to the '70s. I mean. Um, some incredible responses there. If you're if you're looking for sort of the the uh, sort of the fruits of, of radical imaginative rad, radical imaginative thinking. Oh, for sure. I mean, you can pretty much drop the pen anywhere, and you're going to find yeah amazing stuff coming out of these moments of of liberation. You know, like it's like beginning to imagine a new. But the seeds had been sown. I mean, if you look at the at, at Jamaica, you know, there's this there's a thread that goes back. Um, through areas like Pinnacle, which even under British rule had been free areas where there where Maroons lived and lived by their own rules and their own laws. And then when when Leonard Howell in the 30s decides to, 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 to start Rastafarianism, he goes to the Pinnacle. He goes there because he knows he, he will have a little bit of free space to be able to begin the sort of social experiment that leads to Rastafarianism. Yeah. Proclaim his imperial majesty as as you know the the biblical prophecy um and yeah it's it's there pinnacle a place that had already been uh you know was already had, had been free since 1738 <laughs> yeah. you know um so you know there are these these threads i, I mean and i'll say you know like for me uh it, it's, it's no coincidence really um that the, the, the kinds of places that ended up being these sort of hot points, I'm thinking even Lagos, you know, I'm thinking, yeah. you know, places where ideas are strong, mm. where people are thinking about Accra, organizing Accra. society. Accra, of course, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> the fire. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but yeah, but go on, sorry, I keep going, BP, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, I mean, to me, it's, it's, a, it's the sort of stuff that, you can for me anyway. I'm I'm always uh, enthralled by the notion of linking moments across geography, across generations, mm. across you know. This is where, this is where it gets interesting, you know, where you get these small acts of solidarity, you know, where Navajo Indians decide that they're not cool with the notion that there's a bunch of Irish people dying of starvation. Yeah, right. Yeah. And do something, you know, small acts of solidarity. Burn it. Bernadette Devlin turning the keys in New York over to the Black Panthers. Small acts mm. of solidarity, radical, imaginative ways of linking things together, you know? Mm-hmm. Seeing, seeing uh, the fact that your local police department just got rubber bullets, you know, after coming from a place where you were protesting rubber yeah. bullets, you know? Yeah, it's, right. You know, it's, 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 these, it's in those moments somehow that we can find ways to, you know? Yeah. And to go back to where we began, right, where where it is fair to say that, you know, there there are examples of now being different when it comes to the dissemination of information and to, to the movement of people. Black Lives Matter is clearly a, an example of that. Maybe you could just pick up from that point that we where you began be about just the hope that that organization represents. I mean, 
Black Lives Matter, uh, let me just, when I first heard about Black Lives Matter, which is a good few years ago now, I just remember having this kind of aha moment where we had always organized around the negative. Okay, so we were always like, stop, stop this brutality, campaign against police abuse. You know, it was always like, abuse. the words abuse and police were always in our things we would chant, our signage, the way we would think about the problem, the way we were able to conceptualize it. We, we were centering the problem, mm-hmm. okay, as opposed to uh, uh, thinking of it, finding another way to think of it. And by centering black lives and by saying in the most almost humble language that black lives matter, like clearly mm-hmm. matter is the minimum. That's the minimum here, right? Mm-hmm. But that even just saying that, so many people came out and said they wouldn't say it. It was the worst thing ever. How could you say that? Clearly you're, you know, that, that mm. was racist to say that even. Wow, I didn't know like, that. I, 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 yeah, this is when it first, you know, when it first starts to emerge mm. on campuses, mm. you know, it's start to be a thing. You start to see it around. Well, it's it's the, the murder of Mike Brown and, and Trayvon Martin. Really yeah. is what coagulated a, a, a number of different sort of, thinkers together that allowed the, 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 the movement to begin. And for me, it was a kind of a revelation. I was like, wow, it really feels like something's changed because we were center. What we're, what we're locating at the center of this is different than pre- previously. What we were locating at the center before was police action was at the center of this. Whereas BLM centers life. And that's, wow, that's really a very spectacular thing that they did. Mm. And just the difficulty that 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 statement in and of itself, the difficulty that it provides. I I remember there's an area of the university that I teach at where there's a kind of a graffiti area where there's a bunch of things that you can paint on. And somebody wrote Black Lives Matter. And within a couple of days, it was painted over and somebody wrote All Lives Matter. And that's on a university campus. You'd think, you know. Mm. Okay, it's San Diego. Okay, I get it. But you'd think somehow that this isn't a difficult thing for people to swallow, but it is. Mm-hmm. it is. And that's how ingrained it is. And that's what makes it so difficult and some, somehow incomprehensible, I think, to people. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty mad. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, house is on fire. Why are you just talking about your house? Um, <laughs> it's that it's that stupid. Yeah, right. It is like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but but yeah. So so I mean, but in terms of 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 the way the way it's working right now, maybe you could just explain a little bit about that uh, to me, Brian. So you know, look, I'm. Far from an expert here on any on any level, man. I'm happy to talk to you. We're yeah. friends. It's all good. In, in real terms, I think I'd be happier if somebody, you know, who's a part of the movement, explain it to you. But yeah. I could, as as from the perspective of somebody not deeply engaged, um, you know, obviously huge supporter. Obviously gone to marches. Obviously all that stuff. But yeah, like I'm not that. involved in leadership or central role in this. But I think the. The thing to understand about it is, is they, you know, they say uh, this is a movement. It's not a moment. Okay, so previous iterations of 
organizing around this subject was really it, it, it ended it ends up being a kind of uh, a, a series of moments you know where where where, where things reach a, a, such a critical mass that we would we would we would demonstrate for a few weeks and it would go away kind of that that that's the first thing the second thing is it's not uh it's it doesn't work as a kind of uh it's like an umbrella organization in other words there it's not it's horizontal in other words there are black lives chapters all over the country um they, they work together uh they 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 have a certain amount of autonomy in terms of actions if it's you know it, that's the way it works but to think that it's that this didn't that that this just kind of popped up is would be a big mistake. Mm. That's thinking like when Rosa Parks got on the bus, that that was the day that she said, that, uh, it's not today. And she decided she's going to sit in the front. Yeah. Rosa Parks had been an activist for more than 10 years. When mm -hmm. That happened. And you could better believe long before Black Lives Matter, yeah. the, uh, the two women I'm familiar, most familiar with at the center of BLM were involved a good 10 to 15 years organizing. They they were mm -hmm. part of this organization in Los Angeles called the Bus Riders Union, okay. which an organization to organize bus riders because the public transportation system in Los Angeles was so appalling. Yeah, I've experienced was, that. So, yeah. And so they, they organized, they unionized, made a union of people that used public transportation and then used that as a way to lobby to actually, you know, to, to go. It was much worse before. It was called RTD, mm -hmm. rough, tough and dangerous, as they used to say back in the day. Right. But they changed it to Metro. And then, yeah, it's doing a better job, certainly. I mm -hmm. mean, of course, it could improve, but the Bus Riders Union made a huge difference. And a number of those women at the center of BLM were involved in. Right. Um, okay. And, and so going so this is, it's not something out of nowhere it's not yeah. you know, this is something that's building for a long time yeah i, I mean the, the the i suppose what we're looking at really is is effectively the the advent of mobile phone technology in terms of of the yes. the heat that has brought on the the argument and um I mean that has really been the case, right? It's a, we've now we entered an age where you know I mean was it wasn't it a seventeen year old girl who filmed um, the the George George Floyd's murder? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But um, I mean, um, so that has that has been a, you know a, a game changer. Um, in in terms of this is a, can I just this is actually my area of study. So yeah. let me just do a potted history of the sort of. The optical in terms of, you know, social or civil rights, um, this goes back to the 19th century. Um, you know, we know best about Frederick Douglass, but there's also this woman called Sojourner Truth. They're both had been enslaved and they both became abolitionists, the most outspoken people of their era. Um, obviously, Frederick Douglass came to Ireland during the during the famine um, and spoke out against British rule in Ireland and many amongst many other things and tried to educate people about what was going on in America. But both Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth were the most photographed people of the end of the 19th century. Sojourner Truth, um, she uh, basically supported herself by selling postcards of herself. Um, her famous phrase was, um, I sell the shadow to support the substance. <laughs> and it was really an abolitionist agenda <clears throat> driven by selfies, you know? Oh, my God. She would teach people to make photographs of her, and she would sell those photographs of her. Wow. You, can, you know, I mean, I mean this is, yeah, this is into the blind boy territory. Don't, <laughs> don't forget. <I'm> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
we did put up a plaque. We're going to put up a plaque to Frederick Douglass and Limerick. Keep, keep going, involved. keep anyway, going, please, please keep um, going. On the other side of this equation is what Alan Sekula wrote about, who's my professor in this famous essay called The Body in the Archive. And on the other side of it is, so if you can imagine both Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth are making a claim towards a certain kind of citizenship by virtue of their own representation. So they're saying this is this is a human body. This is it being pictured properly. This is us. We are here. We are citizens, basically. And on the other side, you have in France, uh, you have a detective called Alphonse Bertillon. And what his take or understanding of photography is, is that photography is a way to equate and to count. And really, it's a way, uh, another way of establishing citizenship, but it's citizenship for the purposes of social control. Oh, yeah. So it's like Donald Deneen robs a house in Bray last night, gets arrested, gets released this morning, robs a house in uh, Dunleary tonight and we, we arrest him again, but we don't really, we don't know if it's the same guy. Click. So his idea Click. that you, yeah. we have to, you know what I mean? We have to actually measure and count. We're all unique. We all have unique features. Yeah. And it's a, it's the surveilled body mm. as citizenship. And really we're still living in this, in this moment where on the one side you have a 17 year old girl with a, with a, with a, with a cell phone asserting the citizenship of and who's being murdered mm -hmm. against a society that I mean, everything we do is surveilled. Mm -hmm. We're surveilled from the minute we get up in the morning to yeah. the minute we go to bed. You know what I mean, we're, we're constantly turning over information about ourselves yeah. without even knowing it a lot of the times. And that's the body of the socially controlled, the surveilled body. And so we're, we're in this, you know, deeply philosophical notion around what is citizenship that's been going on really since the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. And so... And, and this Black Lives Matter is absolutely critically making an argument for a kind of citizenship which isn't the surveilled body, which is which continues to have a kind of autonomy. Yeah, an in a agency, real yeah. Um, agency. Because, because yeah. like, even with, let's go back again to, to, the, to the film 1992 and, and to what happened then. And you're talking about, you know, the, the, the impetus was, was very similar. Somebody's with a camcorder. It's 1992. Yeah. The whole film is comprised. It's a, it's a camcorder advert. But, um, but it's, it's it is, 1992 yeah. and somebody from a window and it films Rodney King's beating. And, and there began, um, the, you know, that was the match. Yeah. That, that fire. I mean, this is the, for me, this is the, the beginning of the new era, really. I mean, there's other folks, I think, that would say that the Zabruder film, um, you know the, the the assassination of JFK, shot by Zabruder on a on a handheld yeah. sixteen millimeter camera. Everybody's seen it. That that's the moment where things change. But I think you could you could equally make the argument that in terms of the contemporary moment, that the Rodney King filming. But in much the same way, and and you'll remember this from from having watched the film recently. And I went back. I was very happy to actually go back and watch it um, after we spoke. Um, but the thing that softened everybody up for Rodney King was the murder of Latasha Harlins. Yes. And Latasha Harlins is, is filmed from a security camera inside a liquor store. You see that there's an altercation between the woman. Basically the, the woman reaches, reach, the woman thinks that she's stealing something, reaches over and grabs her backpack. Uh, Latasha Harlins pushes her away and, and hits her with the backpack. And as Latasha Harlins walks away, she hasn't stolen anything. She has the money in her hand. You can see the money in her hand. As she's walking away, the woman pulls a gun and shoots her in the back of the head. Now, okay, that's 
horrendous. But what happens next might even be worse, which is that the jury finds the Korean woman guilty. The minimum sentence for uh, uh, she was charged with second degree murder. The minimum sentence, I believe, was I don't know, it was like 10 to 12 years. She killed a 14 year old girl. Mm. Uh, and the judge, Joyce Carlin, I think was her name, but I, I could be wrong. You'd have to see in the film. The judge decides that, that, that this Korean lady is of no danger to society and suspends the sentence. Yeah. So this woman who's just murdered a 14 year old black girl in a liquor store gets away with it. And then here comes Rodney King. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a failure of the optic. It's what Mike Davis calls uh, the failure of social reformist uh, practices, which is that the idea of being with social reformism is that if you show like if I show you a photograph long enough of homeless people on the street or or or, or crime or, or injustice. And if, and if I can get it to enough people that there will be, you know, that there's some optical response that will see that there's something wrong and then we'll act on it as a society. Yeah. But. Rodney King is clearly a situation where we all saw something that clearly is an injustice, but society failed to deliver. Yeah. Um, in other words, the police were declared not guilty after yeah. we everybody saw Rodney King yeah. get, you know, he had 32 fractures on his face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just his face. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Rodney King's face. Yeah, I, I said this to you the last time and. I don't know. Maybe it's not even right to make the comparison, but it, but it is, it is, it is the image of Rodney King's face is the image I remember from that period. Really, yeah. it's the most to my face. Into yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and um, just uh, just before we finish, um, Brian, the failure of the optic in, in another context. I mean, we, we've. You're speaking from LA today. We've we've seen, you know, on a daily basis the the comedy show that that is uh, comes from the White House. But that uh, the optics of that that behavior with that walk from the the White House to the church to hold the Bible, a Bible. Um, I mean, you know, there's a Klansman walking past the army that he's called out to peaceful protesters to hold a Bible yeah. in front of a boarded up church. What's oh, not to oh, love about that metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. Go back to 1933 to find something like that, right? Yeah, um, this is it. Yeah. This is it. This is it. I mean, you know, it's ooh. shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Yeah. I don't, I mean, what, what? I think the realization, I think that we're, you know, after four years of this madness or five years of this madness is that there is, you know, that the net effect of the collapse of the public educational system in this country meets what was first AM radio, like hate radio, as they used to call it when I first came here, you know, like you would never use, you would never use AM radio. You would never, you know, you might have AM radio in your car, you would never go there because it was just either totally crazy religious stuff or totally hate stuff yeah you know the type, rush limbaugh type of stuff um and then and then now it's become fox news become mainstream and it's become i there's a certain percentage of the population here that are committed to that um yeah. way of thinking and that's deeply problematic and he's you know he's i was just thinking about it during the week you know cops finally got uh, canceled, you know, the show cops. Oh yeah. And you know, when we teach about reality TV, like that's one of the first or kind of original film or, or original shows that folks talk about, you know, this notion of kind of real time 
um, television in the field um, where you're not quite sure, you know, it doesn't seem in any way staged or reconstructed or anything. It's like real time, you know, documentary. And um, yeah, this is the reality television president. I mean, it's yeah. there needs to be something shocking or um, difficult every, you know, difficult to swallow at least once a day or yeah. worst case scenario. Every as difficult day. to swallow as bleach. <laughs> yeah, difficult to swallow as bleach. But look, you know, again, you know, to, to think that this is this is shocking and this yeah, it's it's all connected, right? We, you know, I mean, the thing is that I mean, you've been there since 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 ninety one. It's it's the it's the um, it's the it's the it's the final chapter in 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 you know uh, it's of a, a very 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 heading in one direction sort of play. As in, he is the epitome of that broken dream, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look at it. I'm sort of you know. Um, Check out Adam Curtis hypernormalization. Oh yeah, that's another one, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so the idea here being is that you know is that is that Putin devised. I mean, this is a much longer story, but 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 basically, Putin devised a kind of form of government that's like experimental theater, a kind of experimental theater that was popular in the seventies in in the Soviet Union, and he hired a number of those guys. They went bad, basically. But the idea, the kind of theater it is, where you're never quite sure what the subject position is. So you're in a constant state of confusion. You're not sure what's going to happen next. And it's a kind of hypnosis. It, it starts, if, if it goes over a certain period of time, people start to become deeply confused and anxious and then act out of fear. And this is what Trump is doing. It is a script. It is not, do not think that this is some bumbling idiot who just happens to say the wrong thing every day. This mm. is absolutely scripted. I, I really believe this. Mm -hmm. You know, he comes from that world. Yes, it, it's helpful to be a little bit bumbling for somebody like him because it makes him seem like, a, you know, in, in, there's a kind of, there is a kind of uh, comfort in mediocrity, you know? Well, yeah. see, that's just what, how real, a real person would do it. They wouldn't be able to get through the whole sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hang on a second. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think that's the, that's the thing to understand really is I think Curtis is onto something. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this is what we need to be aware of. It is as opposed to a kind of presidency that works, you know, the old idea was it, it ran with the, you know, the round the clock news, you know, nah, it's round the clock social media. It's every 10 seconds, you know, mm -hmm. it's like that of an attention span. And, you know, he's, he's, he's got some, he's got a really good understanding of how this works coming from reality television. Mm -hmm. These yeah. are linked. I mean, there's, you know, so it's, but imagine, imagine doing our governance through the same part of your brain that you watched uh, reality television. Like that's not the right part of your brain to be making these kinds of decisions. Yeah. We got the remote, yeah, honey. We got the remote. Wear I mean, masks, don't wear masks. Um, what would yeah. they do on Love Island? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's where we're at. Like, yeah. <laughs> Wow, on, on that wow. bombshell! Wow, uh, be, you brought it to um, you brought it to exactly the place that I think it's at right now, which is in that kind of fantasy zone. Um, yeah, no, but it's very dark, uh, Donald. Honestly, mm. man. Like, I mean, anybody, 
you know, whoever's back there writing the script to think that you could do something on Juneteenth, the day that Texans celebrate the end of slavery in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street was a pogrom of, of, of black business and bodies from 1921, almost 100 years ago, 99 years ago, and that you could do it, like you could do something like that. Yeah. Okay, he's changed it by one day. Yeah. Isn't he great? Yeah. But like, this isn't, that's not, that's not that, he's, he, he wants this. Like, I I firmly believe, the moment of my most intense anxiety over the last few weeks, I have to be honest with you, was finding evidence more than usual because there's always infiltrators i mean i i'm just <laughs> just going to speak openly here but when you go to these kind of marches there's always these kids that you're like where do they come from and yeah. then you realize afterwards that they were like paid police bad actors basically who were going to yeah. do something oh, right that would cause the police then to have an excuse to fire rubber bullets at you or whatever mm-hmm. and take your otherwise completely 10,000 peaceful protesters and turn them into target practice for the police department um but I found more evidence of that and I found more evidence of I, I went the morning after and surveyed basically um, what happened in Los Angeles at basically in the area just north of Pan Pacific Park. So it was the first Saturday and um, there was a bunch of things burnt and there was a bunch of, you know, it was, it was it was it went on for a long time between the police and the protesters. But what I noticed anyway was is that there was a, a lot of evidence of infiltration, a lot. And even down to the point of like the graffiti looked wrong. And, and I, I, I start to think like, are they like, is this dark ops? Are they actually going to, you know, now start riots? Like what's happening in, in Britain today? Are they going to go and do that as a way for him to? Yeah. And then when I saw that, that press conference with the Bible and yeah. what was more frightening for me, honestly, than the Bible in the church, I mean, I've seen him pull this kind of stuff before is the notion that he was calling in the military that was a step i don't think anybody was really prepared for Mm -hmm. and then following twitter that night and seeing that they were doing operations akin to the kind of thing that they would do in the middle east or that they did in in in, uh, the caribbean or in south america or pretty much everywhere that they've been Mm -hmm. that they were doing that in the streets of dc was you know i i did go through a sort of 48 hour period of like, whoa, okay, mm. so this is really about to go down right now. Mm. Um, but, you know, after talking to some folks on the ground and relinking with people and just be- getting a better understanding of what's going on, um, I started to feel like, mm, no, this is, I mean, this is what you would expect. But yeah, but, um, and I have to say the the thing that really made me feel, um like there, there's there's a, a tiny, tiny little shard of hope in this whole thing is that, you know, he built this stupid fence around the White House because he's scared, basically he's oh, scared yeah. to <laughs> yeah. see people that don't like him. Yeah. Wow, how sad is that? You know, you couldn't even go down to pub. You yeah. couldn't bring this dude down to pub. You couldn't oh, go nowhere. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It's the worst kind of life he has. It's horrible. Mm. Anyway, mm. he, you know, he builds this stupid fence. And uh, within three days of the fence going up, the fence has completely been turned into an artwork mm. for George Floyd and for Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And now you need to see the White House. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I love yeah. that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. um, Brian, thank you so much. I just want to, to, to wrap up the conversation, but also wrap up this episode of Make Me an Island by thanking my guests, Noel Sambu and Merle Boyby and Sunita Apayakarang. Um, and Merle says hello, uh, Brian, by the way. And, um, oh, man, yes. You don't need to cut me out, man. <laughs> Your guests. I want to hear the show. Yeah. I want to hear myself. Well, um, <laughs> and, and most of all to you, Brian. I mean, I, look, the thing is that previous, um, previously we had been planning to to talk about music and, and I want to, to hold you that promise because no better man. And so I'll be back to you very soon, but I'm very grateful for taking the time um, to have this conversation today. So from Silver Lake, Los Angeles, I want to thank you. And uh, and uh, to our listeners, I would actually, um, sorry, B, I would like to to say as well that if you want to find out more um, about the direct provision system and if you want to sign the petition to end that system, then you can do so um, at the uh, move, movement of asylum seekers in Ireland.ie. That's M-A-S-I.ie. On that note, uh, Brian Cross in Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much and goodbye. Thank you, brother. Um, all power to all the peoples, right? Indeed, man. Indeed. Indeed.